0: to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out his freedom. Tonight's reading is from Genesis chapter 1, and we're starting at verse 20. Going through to chapter 2 and ending at verse 3. It's on page 1. So easy to find. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, across the vault of the sky. So God created great creatures of the sea, and every living thing with which the water teems, and that moves about in it. According to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals each according to its kind, and it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has a breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that He had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good evening. Let me say uh, welcome as, as well as Beck. Uh, it's really good to be with you this evening. Uh, my name's Andrew. I'm the senior minister here. I'm also, I have a cold. Uh, so if I'm a bit scarce after the sermon, that's why. It's not because I don't want to talk to you. Actually, I would really like to stay and chat, but that would probably not be good for you, uh, nor me. So um, <clears throat> bear with me if I'm a bit uh, coffee. Anyway, we'll, we'll survive. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to think about that wonderful part of Scripture. Lord, give us the courage that comes from faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, to face the truth about our world and ourselves, and to live in love and hope. Amen. Well, last week we began a new sermon series, looking at the opening chapters of the Bible in the book of uh, Genesis. Um, I suggested, and I want to say again, that uh, people do have different views on this, and that's fine. Uh, We can cope with that as a church. But I suggested that the opening chapters of Genesis need to be understood in their ancient context. Genesis is a polemical text. That is a a text that's engaging kind of in argument with the world around it. Uh, And it's speaking into the assumptions and stories about the world that were around in its time. Uh, the biblical scholar Gordon Wenham, uh, who's a really interesting guy, and his commentary on Genesis is great, but he sums it up like this. Genesis 1-11 to is an inspired retelling of ancient oriental traditions about the origins of the world with a view to presenting the nature of the true God as one omnipotent, omniscient, that means all-powerful, all-knowing, and good, as opposed to the fallible, capricious, that means basically nasty, Weak deities who populated the rest of the ancient world. What does that mean? Well, it means that Genesis, the purpose of Genesis, is not really to tell us the scientific story of our origins. Modern science actually can do that uh, in all sorts of ways. Uh, and it can tell us much about the how it, what we could call the how it happened story of our world. There is, of course, room for people to disagree about how much science can tell us about that, Uh, but I think a fair bit in all sorts of ways. Um, But science cannot satisfactorily answer, though sometimes it does try and the results are not very pretty, it can't really answer the deeper questions we have about life. Questions like, why are we here at all? Why do things matter? And how should we treat each other? Those questions, science is actually pretty bad at. But those are the questions that Genesis does give us answers to. By telling us that brought into being as the free, generous gift of the God who is the maker of heaven and earth. That's kind of what last week was about, as a bit of a catch-up. Well, as we turn this evening to the latter half of, of this beautiful, poetic text that is Genesis chapter 1... The questions that come into view have to do more specifically with the natural world that surrounds and sustains us, and our own place within it. In the first three days of the account, um, we looked at days one to four last week, but in the first three days, God creates what we could call spaces. Light and darkness on day one, sky and water, day two, land and sea, day three. And then in days four to six, God fills these spaces with lights in the light and darkness, sun and moon, on day four, with living creatures in the water and sky, day five, and with living creatures on the land, day six. And as we consider especially the last two days there, days five and six, we're invited to learn about the life of animals and the place and purpose of human beings. Now, it might seem that here we're back in the realm of science. Isn't biology the place to learn about the life of animals? Well, here again, the answer is yes and no. If you want to know how a cow's digestive system works, which is actually super interesting, because they have all the different stomachs and so on, uh, or if you want to know about the difference between marsupials and monotremes, platypuses? Are monotremes? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Biology is going to help you a lot more than Genesis with that. But what if that's not the question you want to answer, or the kind of question? What if your question is about whether animals matter, or how we should treat animals? Well, then things get less clear. They get less clear because those kinds of questions are, again, questions that science is not really very good at answering. It can try, it can point out that animals like octopi and dolphins clearly have a high degree of intelligence. But what it cannot do is evaluate that fact. It can't tell you whether that matters. It can't tell you whether intelligence is important or what it means. Right? To be able to say that the intelligence of these animals makes them worthy of special respect it requires you to know something that science doesn't, which is that intelligence is worthy of respect. Let me give you another example. Most biologists and many people think that the theory of evolution can help us understand a lot about biological processes of development and adaptation, and fine by me. Um, However, as soon as you start seeing evolution as a guide to moral questions, questions like how humans should look after the natural world and what we should value well then you get into an absolute disaster because all you've got is principles like life is about the survival of the fittest and if you take that seriously it makes you totally indifferent to the weak and the disabled you start to look at everything as simply part of an unfolding process so that no particular form of life really matters, but only the unfolding process, if anything, matters? And who is to say that the future of evolution is not artificial and our task is not to use the resources of the earth however we want to transcend our biological limitations through new forms of digital life? You see, as a guide to life and moral questions, the theory of evolution is hopeless. If we are to understand and think rightly about the world we live in and our place within it, we actually need light from other sources than science, though science is critically important and valuable in its own way. And that's why, similarly to what I said last week, what we see in our world is that most people actually don't have a rigorously scientific worldview. Most people actually have all sorts of other beliefs and look to all sorts of other sources of wisdom. And who can blame them, right? Because isn't it obvious that as a species, we probably lack wisdom? At least I think it's more and more obvious these days. We live in a time of unfolding global ecological catastrophe. Last week, by which I mean the first week of July actually, not the... This last week may have been, I'm just not as sure on the data, but the week before that, that was the hottest week ever recorded. And July is predicted to be the hottest month in 120,000 years. It is a time of massive decline in animal populations. Um, on average, bird, mammal, and amphibian populations have dropped by 69% since 1970. Right? That's, I was born in 1982. It seems like a long time ago for some of you, but some of you were born even before that. Basically in my lifetime, decrease in animal populations. It is a time of mass extinction. The vast bulk of the earth and sea has been hugely altered by human actions. We live in what is widely called now the Anthropocene. That name is a way of marking the first time ever in the history of the earth that human actions have had a decisive impact. On the planet's climate and ecosystems? Is it any wonder that people are flailing about for wisdom? Now, it may seem an unlikely claim that some of the answers we need are found in Genesis chapter 1. This text has actually been blamed sometimes for the mess we're in, unfairly, I think, but blamed because of the way it speaks of humans as rulers of creation. People have And people have used this text at times to justify all and every human exploitation of the natural world. But that, I want to say to you this evening, that's a bad misreading. That is not the vision of human dominion that Genesis sets before us. So come with me and let's look at what it says about first, the outlines on your sheet. First, creation's goodness second, the life of animals, and third, the place given to human beings. Okay, I want to draw your attention in the first place to what the text says about the goodness of what God creates. As we noticed last week, this is one of the drumbeats of the text, and God saw that it was good. We see it again in our passage in verse 21, verse 25. You'll see it in the text if you have a look. Even things that in the ancient world were not Ever really called good, like the sea monsters in verse 21, whatever they are. But sea monsters in the ancient world were, were, were normally kind of creatures of chaos and darkness. You know, that is giant squids and stuff, that's like the unknown, the freaky, nothing world that you're you just scared of. But here, no, they're actually just more of God's creatures, and so they're good. They're good. And then there's this wonderful overall judgment in verse 31. At the end, God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. Or another way to translate that would be, and it really was very good. It makes a big difference to know this, because it means that our attitude towards the world around us and towards ourselves and one another ought to begin with admiration admiration that's one of the words I want you to take away from tonight you see to admire something is to appreciate and love something for what it is without needing it to be different or wanting to have it or to use it I've tried for years to teach my kids to admire the things they see in shop windows and catalogs rather than simply desiring to have them I actually try and do this I say I know you want to have that, but why don't you try and admire it instead? Just delight in its goodness and be glad that it exists. I report that that attitude does not come easily to us. But, you know, it is the attitude we need, admiration. It's, I think it's what we see God doing when, on the seventh day, he, he looks at what he has made, or when, at the end, he looks at what he has made and sees that it is good and so rests. He lets it be. God rests on the seventh day because there isn't more to do. What has been made is good and can just be admired, loved for what it is. We learn different basic attitudes from our culture, you see. We are taught to desire to possess and to consume and to use. And it has led us astray. It has made us want and possess and consume far more than we need and, and do things just because we can. It has made us dissatisfied with ourselves, with our bodies, our lives. And it has eviscerated our relationships with one another. There is a place for possessing and for consuming and for using but they are not the starting point. Our starting point must be to learn to admire, as the Lord does. To learn to rest and not just work, so that we can actually see, actually respect and let be. But what do we admire? What, what is it about creation that is good? We, probably can't say every, we definitely can't say everything, but the text does point us in a couple of directions. I think it points us to creation's order and its variety. Or if you want to put them together in a nice way, it's variegated order, you could say. First, the goodness of creation lies in creation's order. The sense of organization is everywhere in this chapter. Things are what they are meant to be, and they do what they're meant to do. Um, and things have their own kind. Did you notice that? That refrain too, it begins uh, in the part of the chapter we looked at last week where the trees and the vegetation appear according to their kinds. And in our chapter, the sea creatures and the birds are made according to their kinds in verse 21. Verse 24, the land animals according to their kinds. It's an unmissable emphasis. Have a look at verse 25. God made the wild animals according to their kinds the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Things have their proper kind and function, and human beings whose kind is to be made in the image of God, they are placed on top as the rulers. But it's not just the sense of order that is good, but also the variety. It is the multiplicity of kinds that is good, the sheer abundance and variety of life. I love that phrase, the water teems with living creatures, verse 20. And the repetition of the phrase, according to their kinds, gives a sense of vast depth and complexity. This sense is summed up in that wonderful phrase at the end of the account. account, Chapter 2, verse 1, did you notice it? Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. Their vast array. It points us to the variety and complexity and abundance of God's creation. And that too is what makes creation good. Now I want us to notice this emphasis on complexity and variety because I think it draws our attention to one aspect in particular of our current ecological crisis. Namely, mass extinction. The estimates are that one million of the eight million plant and animal species on Earth, one million of them are threatened with extinction. Now you might not think you might think, well, it's not so bad, one in eight. You know, we've still got seven-eighths. but a heck of a lot of those are the insects. And they're not that threatened. Actually, certain kinds of animals are overrepresented among these. Up to 40% of amphibian species are threatened, and more than 33% of marine mammals. An ongoing abundance of insects is great, I guess, but it's not much of a comfort in the face of the loss of whales and rhinos. The rate of extinctions taking place today is tens to hundreds of times, the average over the past 10 million years. Australia has the highest rate of mammal extinctions in the world. Can you see how, in the light of Genesis chapter 1, extinctions represent a special kind of tragedy? Because extinction means the loss of a whole one of these kinds. It is a cause for grief and lamentation. Do you know at one point in the book of Revelation, God's judgment is called the time for destroying those who destroy the earth. I think that's harrowing because I think the evidence is clear that it is human civilization that's wreaking this havoc on the natural world. But whatever your view on that, can we all just agree that this is a cause for lamentation. Genesis asks us to see extinctions in theological terms. What a tragedy. What a calamity that in our time, creation's vast array should be so decimated. Woe to us. Well, in the second place, let's look at what this text says about the life of animals. Notice first the term that is used for animals. In verses 20 and 24, animals are called living creatures, uh, and the Hebrew phrase there is nefesh hayah. I mean, that's the one that translates living creature, um, and it's significant because the same phrase is used of human beings in chapter 2, verse 7. In 2.7, we read that the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man man became a living being. And the last words there, living being, they translate the same Hebrew phrase, nefesh hayah. Both human beings and animals are nefesh hayah. There probably is something unique about the way um, the man receives this breath, but overall, the clear point is what we have in common. Humans and animals are, in important ways, the same kinds of creature. Secondly, notice that God blesses the animals. Did you notice? In verse 22, God blesses the sea creatures, even the sea monsters and the birds. God blessed them. This is the first time the idea of blessing comes in. And it signals the specialness of animal life, I think. God gives his approval and support to the creatures. The sea creatures and the birds, are, they're also commissioned to fill the sky and the seas. They're given a job to do. The same applies to the land animals, though I think their blessing is folded into the one for humans, so it's a bit complicated in verse 28. But they too are, called, are blessed and called to be fruitful. Now what does that mean? It means that We human beings are not the only ones with a job to do in this world. We have fellow creatures who are also blessed and also called to be fruitful and multiply. And these fellow creatures don't exist just for us. There are livestock, sure, and they kind of seem like they're for us, but there are also wild creatures and creeping things. There are birds and sea creatures and they all have a life to live before God under his blessing. It's also striking that in Genesis chapter 1, animals are not given to human beings as food. Did you notice? That does happen later in Genesis. In chapter 9, after the flood, the animals are given to Noah for food. So you can't argue straightforwardly from Genesis that everyone must be vegetarian, but if you had chapter 1 only, you could. Because at first, the animals are not for food. And that is another signal, I think, that animals are not just in this world for us. But that is how we're treating them, taken as a whole across the world. Let me repeat what I noted at the beginning, that on average, bird, mammal, and amphibian populations have dropped by 69% since 1970. That's not being fruitful and multiplying. Now one of the main reasons is that humans are simply taking up all the space. The UN reckons that three-quarters of the land-based environment, like all the land of the world, and about 66% of the marine environment has been significantly altered by human actions, and that more than a third of the world's land surface and nearly 75% of freshwater resources are now devoted to crop or livestock production. Have a look at this graph of total mammal biomass on Earth. That is, this is a graph of the weight of all the bodies of mammals on Earth. Out of a total of about 1,100 millitons, I think that's what it is, humans make up about 40 percent. Domesticated animals make up about 55 percent. And we leave about 5 percent for the wild marine and terrestrial mammals. I want to challenge you whether you think this is what Genesis has in mind when it talks about the animals being fruitful and multiplying. I'm not wanting just to jump to simplistic conclusions or simplistic political arguments, but just to recognize that maybe we're getting it wrong. But we won't get anything right if we're not clear about our own place. So let's, in the third point, look at what we see here about the human distinctive. When God makes human beings, suddenly it's really different. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Notice some of the differences. First, humankind is not made according to its kind, like the other creatures. In one sense, humanity is just another kind of land creature, but that kind is special. This one is made in God's image. Second, notice the different beginning, where it says, God said, let us make. We haven't heard that before. Previously, it's just, let there be, or let the water team. But here, there's suddenly a different mode. There's this kind of deliberative pause. Let us make. What is that about? There are all sorts of ideas, but in my view, the simplest is just that it signals that God is going to have a different kind of relationship with this creature, this will be a creature God doesn't just command and observe, but relates to in a special way. We see this come out further in the blessing. God blessed them, it says, and said to them. Over here, God blessed them and said to them. That's different in Hebrew and in English from the way the animals are blessed in verse 22, where it's just God blessed them and said, not to them. That is, God doesn't speak to the animals in the same way, because I think the implication is because they don't obey freely in the same way humans do, but simply of their being. But human beings obey consciously and freely by willing and choosing to accept what God commands. And I think that is a good way to begin understanding what the image of God is about. It's not all it's about, but it's one of the things that is worth saying. Now, this is a vexed question, the image of God, because, and the reason is, the text doesn't actually tell us what it means to be made in the image of God. And so if you've always assumed it means one particular thing, like that humans have you know, rationality or something, I'd encourage you to look and think again. It doesn't say that. The idea of the image of God is not obvious or simple, and on the whole, I think we should be cautious and treat this idea primarily as a signpost to human distinctiveness rather than a description of what it means. But I also think that the image and likeness to God that it is talking about have something to do with freedom. Not freedom in the sense of just being able to do whatever you want, but freedom in the sense that actions are willed just as God creates freely in Genesis chapter 1 so now he creates a creature that doesn't just live automatically but lives intentionally generating its own purposes that can be articulated in language if not by itself by others and so this will be a creature that normally speaks and is responsible to God in a new way and so can be creation's ruler. All of creation, all animals have a relation to God, but human beings will have a unique kind of relationship to him. As we continue in Genesis over the coming weeks, we'll see this distinctive start to play out. We'll see it tested. We'll see the way human beings have a different relationship to God that gives them extraordinary power. For now, though, let's just notice that in Genesis 1, God's creation of humanity in his image means that humankind has a task that's different to the other animals. We are called not just to be fruitful and multiply, but to rule, To, to what, what does it say? So that they may rule over the fish in the sea and so on. Humanity is appointed, appointed as the earth's king, In some other ancient creation stories, actually, the king was said to be made in the image of God. That kind of idea is used in Egyptian creation stories. The king is in the image of God. But in those, that's what distinguishes the king from all the other humans, all the other kind of pitiful nothings. In Genesis, it's not like that. All human beings are made, it says, in in God's image. And so all people are creation's rulers, Sometimes we think that the main problem with the world is people thinking too highly of themselves. And there are, of course, there are a lot of really arrogant jerks, and that doesn't help anything. But a much bigger problem is that we do not think anywhere near highly enough of ourselves. We think we are unimportant, and that what we, can, what we do doesn't make a difference. We're only little people dwarfed by the universe, insignificant big place, but we're not insignificant. We are kings. Do you hear what the Bible says here? You were made to be the rulers of the earth. That is the task that belongs to you. Not because of your abilities or achievements or standing or powers, but just because you are a human being. Do you feel the nobility and the dignity of this And do you see how it makes all our pride fall into complete irrelevance? Because what could be better, what could be nobler, more magnificent than this place that is already yours? You will never do or achieve anything grander than what you have simply because you're a human. And it is a place that belongs to every human being every man and woman, every child and old person, every person with a disability, every person who is different from the centre of the normal curve. But to feel the majesty of this place and calling is to see also the horror of our failure. Because we human beings clearly have not ruled the world as we were made to. In our time as We observe this failure has become apparent in all sorts of new ways to which we could add so many others. We could talk about the ubiquity of plastic. To the corners of the earth, we have sent our rubbish. We could talk about the vast tracts of ocean made utterly lifeless by the three to four hundred million tons of heavy metals, solvents, toxic sludge and fertilizers dumped annually, annually, into the waters of the world. What will we do? Like, What can we do in the light of all this failure? One path that lies before us came into the open when Mark Zuckerberg launched what he called the metaverse. Did you see this video? Come on, who saw this video? Did you see this video? It was a a really cringy video uh, introducing what Zuckerberg said would be the future of our lives, using new tech like glasses and so on to integrate the digital and the real worlds, giving us, he said, quote, an incredibly inspiring view of whatever you find most beautiful. Now, if you saw the video, did you notice that what featured prominently were images of nature, like this? But nature that you could actually get a message with a picture of a dog over the top. But you know, there's a lot of nature in there. Do you see what's really going on here? I pick on Zuckerberg only because it shows us something bigger, I think. In a time of ecological catastrophe, we are being offered a digital substitute. We're being invited to make do with a digital substitute. We are being offered a way of escaping from the mess and escaping from our failure. Well, Jesus offers us something better than escape. He offers us forgiveness and hope. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the Colossians. The Son, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven. And on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things." whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Human beings were made in the image of God, but now the one who is the image has arrived, Jesus Christ. The one through whom all things were created and in whom all things still hold together has come to bring healing and a new beginning through the divine gift of his death that makes peace. Do you see the cosmic scope of what God has done in Christ? His purpose to reconcile all things, in heaven or on earth, to heal what is broken and save what is lost, and that is what Jesus offers us, to be a part of that. A little later on in Colossians, Paul writes this, Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Friends, there's lots we could go into about what this means and how it affects us, but I just want to finish by noticing this, that that here is a path. That is better than fleeing to the metaverse. The path of stopping lying, stopping pretending, and seeking to live according to knowledge and beginning to discover again the calling of those who bear God's image and to learn to be kings like Jesus is king, gently, graciously, powerfully. I want to challenge all of us to open ourselves to this path in whatever ways that is going to open up for you. The path of freedom, freedom to face and lament our failures in the knowledge that Christ's death brings forgiveness. And then freedom to try and live with open eyes here and now in the confidence that the one who made this world in the beginning has come to save it and will not be defeated. Amen.
0: Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit
1: neac.com.au